Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Welcome to the episode of After the Bell. I'm Laura, your host, and thank you so much for joining me. I wanted to start this episode by discussing a film I saw on Netflix this week called The Kissing Booth 2. And yes, that does mean that there's a Kissing Booth 1. Have I seen it? Yes. Am I a little excited that they're advertising Kissing Booth 3? A little bit, don't judge me. But in these tumultuous times, I think it's important to have a little bit of escapism and something a bit silly to watch. And that is definitely what this is. It's a little bit morally ambiguous. It's certainly very vapid. It involves a dance sequence using a video game and somebody breaking their ankle just beforehand just to create that climax. So I feel in itself I've set up the kind of film that it is and I take no shame in watching it and enjoying it and if you're one of those people that likes a bit of trashy tv I also recommend it for you. The reason I'm mentioning it though as part of the intro to this episode is that as part of the college process in America they have to write a personal essay and the film suggests that The question is, and I don't know if this is universal, is where do you see yourself in five years? And throughout the film, she writes and rewrites this essay and ultimately comes to the fact that she can't write it because she feels at the age that she is at, she doesn't really know who she is. And so she'd prefer to discuss who she wants to be in five years rather than what she wants to be or where she wants to be. And she distills it down to qualities over qualifications. And I think that that's a really interesting viewpoint. And today I have Jess on and she is an ex-student of mine. In fact, I taught her my very first day of teaching. She was very serious about her education. She's highly qualified. She's now a psychologist. She's worked in both private practice and also as a school counsellor. I originally asked her on because I thought that especially during COVID and isolation times, her insight would be incredibly important for our young people and also for parents and teachers dealing with difficult mental health challenges right now however throughout the conversation although she did offer some incredible professional advice her personal introspection was really insightful to me and I liked her ability to reflect on the qualities and her own journey towards personal identification and I think that that was something that wasn't necessarily expected but really exciting to distill at the end of this episode so this is Jess a psychologist an ex-student and an incredible human being Hello, Jess. Thanks for being on today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So I thought we'd jump right in. So my first question is, what were your early years of high school like? My early years of high school, the first transition to year seven was a little bit difficult for me. We were in an amazing year seven group, but I always sort of felt a little bit on the outside, more because I was really focused on study and I always have been I've been you know it's been one of those things that I've get enjoyment out of and have always wanted to do really well and I guess a little bit of a people pleaser as well so wanting to make a good impression for teachers and I guess for me sometimes that was at the detriment of 
friendships and, you know, perhaps being considered as one of the, I hate to use the word, but, you know, one of the more popular people or, you know, in that in crowd. So, yeah, I guess the first years of high school for me were a little bit challenging and I was from a separated family as well. So having to juggle going between two houses and transitioning to high school was was challenging. You know, I always found that the idea of popularity and the hierarchy of that social element to be so bizarre. I've never, even now, I don't understand it. I don't understand who's popular, why they're popular, why somebody's not popular. It is so perplexing to me. I don't get it. Yeah, and I agree. I don't really, I don't understand it either. But I guess there's always that inherent desire to be accepted amongst your peers and that sort of social desirability, I guess. So I do I do think high school is one of those times where you become so aware of the environment that you're in and the people that you're communicating with and you're, you're forced to be in certain classes with different people that perhaps you wouldn't normally, you know, converse with. And I think that that puts a lot of pressure on, you know, social status and where you fit in the status quo, I guess. Yeah, and so I guess, yeah, that concept of popularity is still baffling to me and I for me it has changed quite a bit as I've gotten older and what I actually value but being you know <laughs> 13 with braces and a little bit overweight and acne and all of that kind of stuff you just yeah you do you feel that you really need to work to be a part of that group and sometimes your values are at jeopardy of that which I think is a real shame and I do wonder if you know, more can be done within a school system to actually teach our kids that it's okay to be who you are. You don't have to be who you think other people want you to be. I would love to know how to do that. I would love to know what, <laughs> what, what curriculum we can create, what systems, what, I don't know, whatever it is, that would be the most amazing thing to allow our children and our adolescents to feel coming out of high school. Because I think even in myself, I had to hit 30 before I really started to go, you know what, I don't really think that what everybody else thinks is as important to me anymore. But I was 30 to get to that place. So how do you, how do you let kids in on that secret earlier I don't know yeah and I don't think we I think we're all searching for that answer because I yeah. you know part of I think that's all a part of our identity building and perhaps it's all the brain development still that's happening that you know maybe it's channeling something into that I'm not sure yeah, again not sure of the answer there but I think it's something we need to perhaps more time needs to be dedicated to to work that out and embed it like you're saying into the curriculum as you know, explicitly teaching our kids things like emotional intelligence, which is also understanding how other people feel. And perhaps that will start to combat some of the things like the bigger issues out there, like bullying and feeling out of place and feeling isolated. I could not agree more. So you've said that you were a bit of a people pleaser, that you liked to, you know, try and fit in as well as achieving academically. So how do you think your peers and teachers would have described you in those seven to 10 years? Oh, organized, time efficient, quiet, reserved. <laughs> In the early years, definitely. I think I grew up a little bit in my later years and started to be a little bit more confident in myself. That's a still a journey that I'm going on today. Me too. <laughs> so I think in my early years, definitely quiet, reserved, quiet achiever, perhaps, you know, that's yeah, I would say that. <laughs> it's really funny because I met you in year nine. On my very first day of teaching, you were in that dance elective class that I taught at the end of the day, I still remember. 
And I would have described you a bit differently, I think. And I don't know if it's because of the subject, because it was such a creative subject. And in order to sort of embrace that creative element, there needed to be less walls around ourselves, I think. You know, like I was doing the dance classes with you. I was trying to create a sense of comfort and security so everybody could have a go. And I saw you as being really funny. I saw you as being a little bit silly. I saw you as really like full of joy in those classes. And I think that's where you've hit the nail on the head because the people in that class and the other students in that class, not one of them made you feel like you had to be anybody else but yourself. Yeah. And and I think a huge part of that was like you were saying that you got involved with our dance classes so you didn't have to feel silly while the teacher's doing it as well. So, you know, if I make a mistake, it doesn't matter. And I think that's something that perhaps needs to be demonstrated and modelled more to, to kids is that it's actually okay to make mistakes and we all do and you don't need to be ashamed of that or afraid of that. And I was, you know, especially feeling quite academic and that I wanted to achieve when other subjects like my maths and my English, like the quiet achiever was the one sitting in the corner taking everything on, submitting the homework, you know, a week in advance type stuff. But that dance class, and I loved dance. It was just my outlet. So I did it outside of school as well. So that's where I think I felt most confident and most myself because it was something that I knew and I knew how to do it. And I was surrounded by people that were encouraging of of that and open to, okay, well, what's your opinion? What do you think about it? Rather than that sort of top down or directive approach of this is what has to be done. It has to be done this way. So perhaps I think the description of me, I guess, shows the environment that you're in and how much that actually influences who you are. Absolutely. And who you feel like you can be. And I think we that class in a way, because I mean, I didn't expect to get that class, to be honest. I, I applied for an English and science allotment. And when they found out I had, I had a dance background, I was given that class. And it was such an opportunity for me because when I walked in there, there were kids, including yourself, that had far different backgrounds to me in terms of dance. I mean, there was hip hop in there. There was ballet. There was jazz. There was interpretive dance. There was so many different skills that I didn't necessarily have myself. And I think that it was important to me to learn just as much from you as you could learn from me in that class because there was so much to learn. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's that collaboration, I guess, and everyone feeling comfortable to learn and be open to other experiences. It was a different class to anyone that I've ever been in since really. Even my VC dance was, again, structured and directive and this is what you have to be doing, you know. So there's not a memory that I have of my entire schooling where, you know, I sort of felt as easygoing and relaxed as I did in that class. And perhaps I I can't even remember if there was any sort of assessment in in that class. (laughs) But I think that just kind of shows, you know, how laid back I was because everything else, you know, I would be worried about and (laughs) be stressing about and where did I go wrong and how did I get that wrong and what can I do differently next time to do better. But, yeah, I don't even remember if there was assessments in that class and I think that highlights, you know, perhaps the focus was taken away from grades and, you know, letter grades, I mean, and actually just enjoying and being present in 
the subject and what we were doing. Yeah. And I think that was, I, I got just as much learning from that too, though, because even I had no instruction on how to teach that class. I hadn't learned at university. I hadn't taught a dance class like that before. There was very little curriculum, so I had to work with it. And I was lucky that you guys were so giving, I think. I mean, one of the assessments was you guys taking a class. You had to plan it and you had to take the class and I would just participate in the class with you guys. So that was one of the assessments. And as I said, I learned so much. I, I was, You guys were teaching me routines. You were teaching me different ways of learning to dance and to use my body in a different way that perhaps I hadn't learned. And so that was one of the assessments. I don't think anyone was nervous or upset or worried about that task. It was something exciting because you had the authority in that time and I was your student in that time. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing that, yeah, I don't remember ever being stressed in that subject. It was always exciting, something to look forward to, especially when we entered that the hip-hop competition and, you know, I'm not hip, I don't have a hip-hop background by any chance, uh, any stretch, but it was nice to combine the classical ballet and the contemporary and the hip-hop and everyone came together and we just worked in such a cohesive unit and we had some talented talented students in that class and remember the big the you know the group of the big (laughs) the big boys in that class it just blew my mind in the way that they could move and you know about how caring and genuine and open they were to you know learning different things and to be a little bit silly it was yeah it was a really good memory that I have of uh, my schooling yeah so I probably should give some (laughs) a bit of a background to that hip-hop So it was amazing though. We were invited to participate in this first year of this hip hop competition with another school and I didn't know anything. I think I knew one hip hop girl and all I knew really were the kids that had done dance with me and most of you were more classically trained and I had no idea what to do. So I kind of put a call out to anyone that was interested and all of the kids I knew like yourself and the kids that had been in that dance class came and I knew the strengths there and then we got what three four five boys that I'd never met before with you know more traditional cultural type dance background you know many were Maori and Samoan and had no classical or professional training but had cultural training and they turned up and we were thinking god how are we going to create a routine with all of these ballet dancers and these hip-hoppers and we did. Mm. It was incredible, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, like no, it was the, a good group. The community that was created in that time with amongst people that would never be together otherwise because it was across all the year levels. There was We had 7 to 12, year 7 to 12 in that group. And it we did it during lunch times, I think, as as well from memory. Yeah. In weekends. It was all that time class. For me, you know, especially around that year 9 time, personally in family situations is a little bit difficult around that time but just to have some purpose in the lunch times I think that was a really big turning point for me um, in terms of friendship groups and things so I became a lot more connected to the school socially after that time but for people that don't have a big friendship group you know that they can bounce off if they're sort of stuck to one person which I was in those earlier years I found that having a purpose and something to do in lunch times made me so much more connected to the school and to people that I never like you said would have <laughs> had a conversation with before but you know then even after that time we would see each other around the school and you'd have a brief chat might not be that you're hanging out with each other but there was little bits and pieces in the school where you felt a lot more connected rather than sort of 
wandering aimlessly on your own if the person that you always were with didn't end up coming to school that day. So I guess the reflection that I'm having, and I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but is that perhaps we need to <laughs> we need to have some more things like that in schools where kids or students, I should say, can engage with programs at lunchtime that they're actually interested in because I know that some schools try to run mindfulness programs or you know art programs at lunchtime but I think what we miss is the students having a voice what would they actually enjoy doing and like you're saying we might not necessarily have the skill set to teach them that but allowing them to use their creativity to teach us. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned as a teacher. And I think that the way I learned it was through that dance class that I was thrown into, that I didn't know what I was doing, right? Like, it's crazy. We, You were in year nine and I was in my first year of teaching in 2008. Like, I had no idea what to do, you know, treading water. <laughs> but I think in that, in that vulnerability and understanding that I didn't know, I allowed myself to be taught by other people. And I think that's the biggest lesson as a teacher is to understand that it is a collaboration and it can be quite reciprocal rather than you being the dictator or the only voice or the only source of knowledge in the room. Yeah, absolutely. How would you define a good teacher or a teacher that you found made a positive impact on your learning? For me, it's a teacher that is open with their, with their time. I think that was the biggest thing for me, um, like I sort of hinted to in some of the other responses, that family life was a bit challenging at times. And so seeking that support and comfort from teachers that understood where you were coming from. I think I don't really know how to define it, but feeling understood is so powerful and it might not necessarily be, okay, well, um, you're going to help me out, you know, outside of class time with a math question I don't quite get, but building a relationship outside of the subject that you're teaching. So I guess it's those teachers that take a couple of minutes before class or after class to just show genuine interest in who you are as a person and what's going on for you outside of the subject that they're teaching. So if it's maths, we don't necessarily have to always talk about maths <laughs> and sort of opening up those channels for communication. I can't imagine that every student would want to talk to their teachers about, you know, things that are more private, but I guess just allowing students to know that they are there to support in other ways than just through curriculum. Um, for me, I think was the most important is just to know that if I did need the support, then they had the time to give it to me. Yeah, I understand that. I think that idea of being known and being understood by a teacher is actually really profound. Yeah. You know, the idea that a teacher doesn't know who you are can be really gutting because it's like you don't matter. And I think that making a student feel like they matter is really, really important. Yeah. And even you know, my experiences now being a psychologist in a school, I find it's the incidental conversations with the students taking some time out in our, because we've got a chill out space at, at work where they can come to just take some time out if they're struggling with classes and things and or in the yard or things like that. It's those incidental conversations. So how was your weekend? It doesn't necessarily have to be building those relationships in the counselling space, but showing them that you can't, you know, especially with this all this remote learning time and having some kids on campus when the rest of their cohorts at 
home, you know, saying, well, just come and spend the lunchtime, your lunchtime in well-being and, you know, I'll make you a hot chocolate and tell me about your weekend type thing. Like I think those things are so much stronger and more powerful. It's making the student feel like they matter and that they're worth your time and it's okay for them to be who they need to be and if they happen to be upset in one of your classes or angry in one of the classes or, you know, have an outburst or whatever, it's telling them that it's okay to feel how they need to feel. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be irritated or frustrated, but it's what we're doing with those emotions that's really important. But I think the messaging is you can be how you need to be and it doesn't mean that we don't care about you or don't want to support you, you know, because you've had a day where it's been a bad day. Mm. I wonder how you think, how you feel about the idea that, you know, if I'm crying or if I'm sad and somebody says, you know, don't be like that, don't cry. To me, it's more about somebody being uncomfortable with you crying than it is about you having that emotion. And so to me, it's that idea of that external shaming that I don't want you to cry right now because it makes me uncomfortable. So stop it. And I feel like that's that's how I see that messaging going. I'm just wondering from your perspective as a psychologist, what you think about that. Yeah, and I would agree. I would agree. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human and we're not going to respond in the best way all the time. But I think if we really mm-hmm. aim as parents and as teachers or any adult in the, in these kids' lives, that if we're aiming to allow for free expression, you know, it's free expression of our needs and our emotions, and that's actually okay to be able to do that. I think it's really difficult for, like you're saying, for some people it actually feels uncomfortable for them to be able to try to hold that. But at the end of the day, it's not our job to change, you know, especially, you know, in wherever the situation may be, but it's not our job to change in that instant how they're feeling or were you crying so stop crying it's allowing the space and holding the space and it can be so hard to do because we're in this fast-paced society at the you know where everything's happening so quickly and silence has become an awkward social you know interaction where if there's silence someone needs to fill it and it's not okay to have silence but sometimes having silence and just being there is more powerful than saying anything. You know, it's okay to cry. I'll just sit here until you're ready, you know, and they may not want to talk about it afterwards, but it's sharing that space with them and holding that space to say, it's okay to be how you need to be right now. We don't have to talk about it. Nothing has to change, but I'll sit here with you and I'll be that support with you until you're feeling okay again. I'd like to give you the opportunity to tell me about your journey to becoming the psychologist and to getting the job that you currently hold? (laughs) Yes, so my journey, (laughs) look, it goes back quite a bit. So when I was really young, so I was three years old, my mum had a brain aneurysm and she was really sick for a long time after that and my parents had separated and we were living with my grandparents. So, you know, we had a lot of family history and things that we were dealing with for quite a long time. She's fine now, (laughs) thank God. We're one of the lucky ones. But, yeah, Mm. so from that I actually wanted to be a surgeon at the beginning of it all. I wanted to do my medical degree and go into surgery. And then I did a placement at a hospital and spent the whole time on the ground, passed out because I found out I can't do, (laughs) can't work with blood or needles. So I sort of thought that career path's not going to be for me then. (laughs) Um, And then I just, yeah, towards the end of the year, I was so confused in year 12. I mean, I 
I worked to get the the highest grade as I could and that was probably at the jeopardy of some of my friendships and experiences of you know being 18. Yeah so then when I finished I decided to do my dad thought about going through so my dad was really excited about this concept of me becoming a lawyer he had a lot of contacts in that area so I thought that would be a really good idea I was still really interested in the helping industry and so thought well I'll do a double degree in law and arts and major in psychology so I can sort of do the helping side of it as well and I went through a phase where I thought about journalism and then teaching dance. <laughs> so that's why I did the yeah. arts degree. So I could dabble in a little bit of everything. And then I worked in a law firm as a paralegal for a little bit. And the experience was amazing and I'm so grateful for it. But it was also quite eye-opening to me in terms of how hard they were working and how long the hours were. And for me, I just felt that I needed a bit of a balance in my career moving forward because um, family is something that's so important to me and something that I want in my future. And I thought I can't work these hours and, you know, balance the family in the way that I want to. I know that everybody's different and completely entitled to their own opinions and journeys, but that was where my mindset was. So anyway, I then started doing constitutional law and I, <laughs> I hated it <laughs> at uni. So I sort of decided, well, I can keep going with doing a five-year degree and then having to do further study to actually become a psychologist or I could just switch now. And I had an amazing careers counsellor at Deakin Uni who actually helped me switch all of the units that I'd done in law into my elective under a Bachelor of Psychological Science degree. So mm -hmm. my degree didn't go any fit, like I didn't have to do any additional study in terms of years and time because she managed to sort of fit that in in the way that it needed to for that. So yeah, then I finished my three-year Bachelor in Psychological Science and at the time, I thought, great, I'll be able to be a psychologist. <laughs> Hadn't oh. looked into it very much. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the shock came that, well, actually you have to do a fourth year. So I didn't get into an honours fourth year. I did my graduate diploma at Monash and that was an amazing year for me. I met some really amazing people that are still in my friendship circle now. First time I dabbled in any sort of research, so that was <laughs> Um, interesting for me as well. And then I finished my fourth year and thought, great, I'll be able to be a psychologist. <laughs> mm. Not so much. So <laughs> essentially, um, once you've done your four years of study, you have to, you become a provisional psychologist and then you either do a two-year internship, you do a five plus one master's, which is an additional year of uni and then an additional year of internship. Or you do a master's, two-year master's degree, and that's what I decided to do. So I started doing an educational and developmental psychology degree, and that was mainly because I wanted to work with children and adolescents. At the time, I was seeing someone that had two young kids, and that really just it opened my mind quite a bit because I was wanting to do clinical psych and work in a hospital. Mm. And then I started seeing this man that had these two beautiful young kids and they changed my whole perception on life and where I wanted to go and mm -hmm. how I could be more help. And that's why I ended up going in Ed to Ed and Dev's site because I thought I would 
I just want to work with children and adolescents because I think we can do so much more work when they're younger before all of these rituals and you know unhelpful thinking styles and schemas are all so set and hard to shift you know we have so much more leniency when they're younger to be able to make a difference which is why I started there started my master's one of the lecturers an amazing man asked if I'd be interested in doing a PhD so I articulated and combined my degree into my master's of ed in education developmental psychology and the doctor of philosophy which was an amazing pathway. It saw me doing research all through Australia. I presented some in London and Switzerland and it was wow. and New Zealand. It was just an incredible few years actually. Yeah. Lots of different experiences meeting so many different people from all over the world and having their opinions and things as well, which was yeah, an amazing few years and luckily for me only uh, it was about a month ago that everything finally got finalized. So I've got Nothing. Mm. <laughs> no more uni. It was a long, long Congratulations. journey. But... <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. But yeah, an amazing journey and one I feel very, very lucky and privileged to be able to have gone on. And the, all the people that I've met in that process has, yeah, been really amazing. And so your job that you're stepping into now is? Yeah. So um, I've dabbled in a few things throughout uni and I think that's something that at school we're never really prepared for, you know, when you're at school, we're in this sort of bubble of, you know, you come to school, it's very structured, you're in this routine. I know when you start to get into VC years, they try to foster that independent learning, but nothing can prepare you for, a, you know, the degree at uni and the part-time work and juggling your family and your friends and some sort of income. <laughs> so when I was wow. doing my master's and PhD, I was working, um, doing placement four days a week, which is obviously unpaid employment. So then I was also working on reception in a um, private psychology practice, which was which was great. And then I ended up being working in that same practice as a private psychologist for a little while, which was an amazing experience. But for me, I sort of felt like I wanted to be more within a system because I feel like if we have a system around kids, you can get so much more from that. So yeah, I ended up getting a job as um, full-time at a secondary school, which is where I'm working now. And yeah, it's it's a really good position because we can work, we have so much, you know, more opportunity to communicate with, you know, external agencies and, and families and the student themselves and the system that's around the students and, you know, speaking to teachers and educating teachers and something that I've been so amazed by is how much teachers want to know about mental health and how much they want to know how can they help and are they doing okay and is this the right thing and what have you done this differently that for me has just been so striking and I I do wonder about you know obviously there's opportunity for professional development after our university training but I wonder if there needs to be more of a focus on that you know, for people that are such key players in our kids' lives when we're probably spending <laughs> teachers especially that are, you know, see them every single day for homeroom, you know, that come to me and will say, I don't know how to deal with this or we've had this issue come up or what would you do here or I need some help or I need some support. And it's even, you know, some of those basic things that, oh, capacity building, 
oh, I can actually do that by myself. I don't need, you know, well-being help for that. I can deal with that on my own. Yeah, that's something I think I went on a bit of a tangent there, but that's um, something that's been really striking to me is the thirst for knowledge and, you know, the desire to want to be able to help. Absolutely. And it's really interesting you bring this up because I think a lot of teachers want to help but are really aware of where their expertise ends and we are really cautioned as teachers as to how much you can help and how much you're allowed to say because if you give the wrong advice and you're not qualified, if you step into a situation that potentially gets out of control and you knew about it, like it's a really it's a really fine line. I mean, obviously we're given boundaries in terms of how personable you can be with kids, you know, how physically close you can be to kids how much privacy you're allowed to have with kids, you know, blinds are always up, all of that kind of stuff. So teachers are unfortunately scared, I think, a lot of the time about what the role is and how much responsibility they can carry on their own. And I find too, you know, I taught in the classroom for nearly 10 years before going on maternity leave. And the things that kids would say to me, especially as an English teacher, because I was an adult that they obviously felt comfortable with, that they were trying to test what the reaction would be. Because perhaps I wasn't the most influential or my opinion wasn't as important to them as somebody else's. So I would often be a test, I would find. So I would have kids, you know, coming out to me about their sexuality first to find out what reaction they were going to get from an adult. You know, I've had students, unfortunately, admit to having suicidal thoughts. I've had students admit to me about difficult family situations in which I'm not qualified to deal with that and I know that I'm not. But the thing is, is that I'm often the first port of call as a teacher and you do need to be aware of what needs to happen and also respectful of the fact that these kids have told you this information. They know that you know and so to dismiss it completely can be very detrimental too. So I don't I don't know what the answer is, but I know that I have certainly been in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think there is a hard and fast rule or an answer, but I think perhaps, you know, having some strategies for teachers when faced with conversations like that that are actually really hard to have and hard to know how to respond, what to say if like you said, am I saying the right thing here? Or, you know, this is what I would say as a caring person, but what would I say in a teacher role, you know, with organisation and policy and all that kind of stuff that you've got to think about? It's And you've got to protect yourself for sure. Yeah, perhaps having some expectation that those things will come up because I guarantee you that they will, <laughs> especially when they yeah. feel comfortable with you because sometimes it's just reaching out and needing to get things off their chest and you might be the only person that they feel comfortable with and perhaps it's then, you know, being able to open up the lines of conversation to get external support or to have parents involved or whatever else it may be. But I think being equipped with those responses and, you know, whatever the policy of the school is, is really important. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm wondering, as we've been talking, obviously you've gone on quite the journey since I had much to do with you, you know, in year 12. I'm wondering how your idea of success has evolved over time. What is success to you now? That's a really good question, Laura. And I think um <laughs> look to me success now is having your family around you having some really amazing supportive friends having time for yourself having time to have that bath and read a book and 
you know, on your own and it be okay to do that. That would be how I define success now, although it has taken me a really long time to get there. And previously, and I think that that has been perhaps um, expectations from different figures in my life and, you know, different people in my life where if you're not succeeding from a tangible, academic, materialistic point of view, then you're not succeeding. And that has been something I've so battled with and perhaps in the last not even six months of my life that I've actually started to turn that around and, you know, come up with my own idea of success. There was, you know, a time there where I was doing my PhD, I was working in private practice, I was working part-time in a school, I was teaching at the master's level, I was supervising fourth-year research projects. Like there was no time for me, there was no time for family, there was no time to build the friendships. And a lot of the time I found myself filling my day with stuff because I isolated myself from friends by saying, oh, no, I can't do that because I need to study. So I found there was a long time there and eight, because I've been at uni for eight and a half years now. And that was a long time where I sort of felt quite alone. You know, you would be busy in the day and, you know, you'd be feeling fulfilled in the day. But then at nighttime, I would be quite alone and, you know, having conversations with my mom saying, well, what's the point of all of it if I don't have anyone around me to share it with? Like I've always been really close with my immediate family, which I'm so fortunate and grateful to have. But at that point in time, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a partner. I, you know, it was just kind of me, myself and my studies at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess for me, I, I met an amazing man who I'm very fortunate to have in my life and he's, a little bit the opposite to me in that he's always incredibly positive, very laid back, very, you know, it's okay to take things a little bit slower, which is something that growing up I never felt that that was okay to do. Mm. And as, as much as I feel like it should be something that we can learn on our own, I think it takes some key people to really change your perspective on things and actually think about what's important. So yeah, I mean, for a long time, and I think it's, you know, it is reflected in the amount of study and things and qualifications that I've got. But at the end of the day, I, you know, that was because I felt like I perhaps had something to prove or something that I had to show, you know, well, look, I I can do it. I am worth, you know, I am worth your time. I am worth, you know, being a part of whatever else, or, you know, I'm worth your accolades. Look at me, look at how much I'm doing, you know. But it's only really changed in the last six months for me to think, well, actually, I'm enough just the way that I am. It doesn't, Mm. I don't need to have a lot of things. I don't need to have, you know, heaps of degrees or qualifications it's actually okay to just be you Mm. don't get me wrong I I'm I'm appreciative of the things that I've done and and wouldn't change that but I think there comes a point in time in your life where success doesn't get defined by the number of things you have but rather by the people that you have in your life to share them with I could not agree more I think that a lot of people do suffer that imposter syndrome at some time in their life I think that it's important to discuss what that even is you know, I've certainly got it. There's a part of me that thinks, why am I doing a podcast? Who am I to have <laughs> this platform, right? Like it really, I've got a dip ed and my two bachelor degrees, but there are so many other more educated people out there that have far more influential roles to discuss these kinds of things. But you do ultimately have to get to a point and go, 
but why not me? Why can't, if I want to do that, or if I want to have that relationship, or if I want to go after that, you know, if I want to go on that trip or have that experience, why don't I deserve to do that? Yeah. But why Why don't you reframe it and say, why, why wouldn't I do it? Who Who am I not to have that experience when other, when I would, when I yeah. would be so supportive of somebody else having it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that is so powerful to, like you're saying, reframe. And I do a lot of that work with my students because you ask them to write three things that they like about themselves or, you know, that they have good qualities that they have or things that they're proud of. And it's so hard. It is so hard to get three things on paper, but you ask them to write, you know, all the things that they wish they could change or do better or do differently. And it's pages and pages and pages without even having to think. So I think you're right. It's just that, you know, it's that constant feeling of you're not good enough Mm -hmm. and you have to do more to show that you are. So, yeah, I think it's that reframing of, well, actually, you're enough just the way that you are. And that comes back to an earlier discussion that we had that the messaging that we send to kids, you know, all throughout their schooling is that it's okay to actually just be you. You know, you don't have to have all the things or all the qualifications or, you know, you can actually just be you and that's okay. So where do you think some of this conditioning comes from? Because we, we've been talking about this now for a little while about, you know, having to deconstruct some of these influences or deconstruct some of the ideas we have about ourselves. But where is the source of that conditioning, do you think? Oh, look, I think the source comes from many different facets and factors and dimensions and everybody is so different in what they've you know their experiences are you know whether it be in in the family home you know if they've got some difficult family dynamics that messaging might be coming through there you know it might even just be one time in in class where they're called upon and made to feel like you know they're silly or they're dumb or they should have known the answer but they didn't and feeling that shame and that guilt it only takes one or two experiences of that yeah. to shake the confidence and go, well, maybe, you know, I'm not good enough. I should have done better. And that's when all those rules and assumptions come in. I should have. I could have. Why didn't I? Mm-hmm. And that I, I just think there's so many different factors. I don't think we can sort of say there's one source of that, but it's part of it is the experience of with different friends and social groups. It's the experiences with teachers and authority figures. It's experiences with family dynamics But then it's also part of it comes down to the negative bias of the person and that if we've been told all Mm. of these things of how we should view ourselves in the world for so long, we then have this negative bias where we actually start to look for things that um, reinforce that idea and that belief rather than taking on the things that, that are completely different. So, you know, if you get a bad grade, It'll be, oh, yeah, well, that fits with what I know about myself and what everybody else thinks of me is that I'm not good enough rather than thinking, oh, well, you know, I did my best on that one. You know, I had I was really unwell that week, so that's probably why I didn't do so great. But I'll just try again on my next one. It's sort of that reinforcement all the time, but our bias to look for that reinforcement that solidifies all of this, which is why it's really hard to shift it and change it and takes a long time and a lot of work. What do you perceive to be some of the greatest struggles in our young people at the moment? Look, to be honest with COVID happening, I think that question may be a little, the answer might be a little bit different from our day-to-day or, you know, typical sort of experiences. What I'm finding our young people and our students struggling with so much at the moment is the motivation to keep going, you know, and the motivation, whether it's with their schoolwork or whether it's with their friends, you know. There's no, you think about the year 12s especially, year 12 is a time where 
most of our kids will get their license. They'll have 18th birthday parties. They'll have a valedictory to look forward to, a graduation ceremony, you know, all of those things that they can bargain with and say, okay, well, I'll do an hour of my study now because then I'll be able to go out with Josie and the Pussycats later, you know, and there is none of that bargaining there anymore. You know, we can't. It's really hard to get ourselves motivated and feeling like we're working towards something when there's so much uncertainty. So, you know, you think about motivation and typically once you do something of what we know about the reward pathways, that's when you get those dopamine hits to say, yep, let's do that again. That was, you know, when you exercise, for example, it's really hard to get started, but once you've done it, you're like, oh, I feel great, I should do that again. So when we think about motivation, it's it's not something that happens. It's something that comes after we've done something. But at the moment, there's not really yeah. much that our kids can be doing to increase that motivation. I'm also finding, you know, family systems are under so much pressure, so much pressure. Oh, so whether that be financially, whether it be because everyone's home at the same time, you know, and so that eliminates some of those protective factors as well that, okay, well, I can go home and that's a, you know, comfortable, safe place for me to be. But, yeah, so I just think everything's heightened, you know. I mean, anxiety and depression are rife anyways amongst our adolescents, but at this particular time anxiety is just through the roof because there's yeah. no give. And you think about anxiety in terms of that uncertainty and, you know, when we when we're viewing the world as, you know, an unsafe, uncertain place to be and we view ourselves as vulnerable, COVID is just a melting pot for that because there is no certainty, you know, and I'm finding it really hard to actually find the words to say to kids other than, yeah, it's a really, really difficult time and I get why you're struggling. But let's try and do, you know, a few things in your day that might bring you joy. Oh, well, the only things that do make me feel good is, when I'm out fishing or when I'm playing basketball with my friends or, you know, going to the supermarket or the shopping centre or going to the movies. But they're stripped of all the things that make them their identity as well. You know, this is who I am. I'm a ballet dancer, but I can't go and do my dancing anymore, you know. So I think there's so many different challenges at the moment. It's it's hard to sort of say and pigeonhole it, <laughs> Um yeah. And I don't really know if that answer was concise or answered your question at all, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is so much that our kids are struggling with and dealing with and trying to juggle at the moment that I think that a lot of advice that I've been giving to them and parents and teachers alike is that it's actually okay if we need a day. It's okay to take a sick yeah. day. It's okay to do a, have a day where you're not studying or, you know, you're just taking some time out for you, you know, try to get to all, you know, your remote learning classes. But if there's a day where you can't, then you can't. And that's actually okay at the moment Um, because I think there's just so much pressure and there's so much pressure on parents to be able to homeschool the kids as well. Like it's it's just, it's a melting pot of pressure at the moment, (laughs) really. Um, So I just think there's so much stress and anxiety and uncertainty in the community at the moment. It's Yeah, it's a really challenging time for everyone. Yeah, you know, even from my perspective, I've sort of taken each lockdown with an amount of grace, I would say. I was like, okay, yeah, I can understand and I can see that and all of all of that that's going on and obviously in Victoria we're now back we're now down into stage four and this was the one that I struggled with the most because the few things that I had in place for myself 
to maintain my mental stability was things like getting outside with my kids. I've got, you know, nearly a two-year-old boy, nearly a four-year-old girl. And to get outside every day and to be out in the sunshine watching them has been really important for me. So to have that distilled down to one hour a day is challenging. Having my kids in care, my daughter's in three-year-old kinder and my son is in daycare one to two days a week so they could have that social interaction with their friends. Now, the first lockdown, I did take them out because I thought that was what I was supposed to do and it was very, very challenging for me mentally. It was very difficult for the kids because how do you explain to a three-year-old that she cannot have any social interaction and to my son that he can't go on the swing because the parks are closed, you know. So I thought after experiencing that the first time, I didn't want to get to that place again. So I put things into place to ensure I wouldn't get into that state and those things that have been put in that I had put into place have now been taken. And so that is what I'm finding this time to be the most challenging and I'm not in year 12 with that additional pressure of performance and that additional pressure of, well, this year means everything and it will it will determine my future. And obviously you and I know that that's not the case. We've been through it. We know that that, that, that pressure is really a perceived pressure. Yeah, but absolutely. It doesn't make it any less real for those kids right now. I completely agree with everything you said. It's, it, yeah, it's such a challenging time. And I think, you know, speaking openly about that, you know, and not trying to beat around the bush and not say, oh, well, come on, let's just, you know, let's just get over it and work your hardest and do your best and but I think it's actually saying yeah it's really hard it's really hard and that's okay too yeah and I'm wondering too in terms of the additional layer of social media like I already see social media as being a potentially detrimental place for people to be and yet that's really the only connection that they have what are your thoughts on social media in terms of how it affects our adolescents oh look I think and this is a personal opinion and something that I have anecdotally there's no not up to date on all the research on it but I'm sure there's something out there but a personal opinion of mine is that social media has been so detrimental for our society kids never get a break they are connected all the time so you think about if you had a fight with a friend at school you know especially because even when I was in high school we didn't have social media back then the way that it is now you would have a fight with a friend you would go home you'd sleep on it you'd get over it and you'd yeah. wake up the next day and things would be fine but now it's constant you'll you know so-and-so will talk to this person about it and then there's a group chat and then there's a snapchat photo about someone that's been sent around and then someone's added something to their instagram story who then someone else has uploaded that to their facebook like there are so many different platforms and it's happening all the time. So I feel for the kids because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Because if they don't, then they don't have that social connectedness like all the other kids and they probably would be ostracised and isolated for yeah. that. And then if they do, they're exposed to this yeah. constant stream of, and look, some of it's positive, but I think that there's not enough education around, you know, clear cleaning out your social media, getting rid of the stuff that doesn't make you feel good. You know, those, especially I went through a phase as well where yeah. I was following so many of those Instagram influencers and I started to get so down on myself of why don't, why don't I have that life? Why don't I look like that? You know, and I've... Of course. Yeah, so, you know, and I've, I'm older, so I wonder, you know, how hard that would be for our adolescents where they perhaps don't have that logical brain completely developed of being able to 
understand and realize well the people that are putting these things on social media like they want you to see what they want you to see you know it may have taken 500 photos to get that one picture like that but they're not going to upload something that's not what they want you to see so I think there's so many aspects of social media whether it be you know this lifestyle as well that you know people want you know even with their friends oh, well, so-and-so's gone on a holiday and they're having an amazing time, but I'm stuck at home. Like there are so many things that social media is rife with issues. You know, it's, like I said, it's that constant um, connectedness. It's not switching off. It's not having a break. It's the, oh, well, I wonder if they replied and I'm going to stay up until 10, 30, 11 because they haven't, so I'm not sleeping properly now. It's, you know, all of the the blue lights, <laughs> um, you know, inf- affecting the sleep as well. It's Yeah, yeah it, it's just, you know, and things like Snapchat where they think that that's a safe platform. So they might share a picture that's invasive oh. of their privacy in terms of sharing but it never goes and that's what concerns me and it's nothing stopping someone from taking a photo Mm. of that and sharing it around like it's so dangerous in so many ways but then it's that balance at the moment whereas we'll actually don't have another option (laughs) you know and I've been speaking to a lot of parents who yeah you know they're that you know even um like kids that are gaming and they connect online socially through their gaming you know and parents are getting really concerned well you know what do I do here? They can't go out and socialise with their friends. I don't want them on screens the whole time, but this is how they communicate and how they're connecting with their friends. So what do I do? And I guess there isn't really a hard and fast answer to that. I think we need to keep connected and sometimes it's just making sure that we're doing that in a safe way. I think the idea of the persona, the online persona is really important to start to deconstruct. I had an experience actually with a student, an ex-student, sorry, who contacted me or tried to get into contact with me via Facebook several years after I taught them. Um, And so I added them onto Facebook and we ended up catching up for a coffee. And she was saying to me that she had done a deep dive through my Facebook profile and that she ultimately found it very overwhelming because she didn't know how she would achieve what I had achieved, how she could live the life that I was living, um, and that, you know, if she would be able to have to have had done what I had done by the age that I was. And I was so taken aback because I said, if you think that that is a true representation of my life, then you are, you are delusional. I put up there the things that I'm happy to celebrate, the things that I'm happy to share with people, because when I'm having a bad day, I don't want to, I don't want, you know, the people looking in on my life to see that. I want the people in my life to be there for me to experience that with me. And so I said to her, as the person whose life you think you're looking at, I'm telling you that it's not real. And it's not that I had any agenda. It's not like I, you know, it was, I was manipulative. It's just that, I don't feel like posting those things. That's not something that would give me joy. And also, God, I don't want to be some whingy person on on social media either. That's not that's not interesting to me. I'd prefer to go and have a whinge to my friend, have a hug, you know, have a glass of wine and and do that personally. I don't want to do that over social media. And that's also the generation that I'm from too. I'm not an oversharer like that. But the sad thing was is that people are looking at these platforms and these versions as true and they are certainly not true they are one angle a very nice nicely filtered angle I'll say too and I think that that's important to start telling our kids as well yeah no I completely agree I completely agree and yeah it's it's one of those exactly what you're saying you know you you're sharing the things that you're happy for your social network to be involved in and those really 
personal private moments where life might not seem as <laughs> filtered and cozy and lovely. We, you don't really particularly want to share those, you know, widely. Um, mm. So I agree. I think there's so many facets to it. It's fascinating to me. Social media, I find it so interesting, you know, in terms of who posts what and why and when. And it's, yeah, it's just one of those things that I think we're never going to really come up with a complete solution as to the best way forward but I definitely think time is worth dedicating to that yeah I completely agree all right I have one last question for you Jess what advice would you give to students and parents going through remote learning during these times oh what advice (laughs) self-care and I know that it's one of those words that's thrown around and doesn't have a lot of weight or meaning to it and can be a little bit fluffy at times but I definitely think self-care is so important whether find what excites you find what gives you joy find what makes you feel relaxed find what makes your mood go from a five to a six or whatever else however you want to quantify it um, and make sure you incorporate it into every single day and whether that's okay I'm going to do a time sit down and do a family timetable of okay well when are we going to have some family time if that's what your family's into but when are we also going to have some us time and when is it okay for me to be separate and to take some <laughs> some time away from everyone and for that to be okay that not to be a oh well you're going away because you're sick of the family or whatever and just sort of having an understanding that it's just a really, really tough time. So my advice would be, yeah, find something that you can find joy in. Do your best with what we have right now. And that might not be your best in another time. And that's okay too. Um, to reduce some of the pressure, because uh, particularly for the year 12s, ATAR scores are not the be all and end all. There are always other pathways to do what you want to do. It might take you a little bit longer, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. I had a student say to me on Monday, and it was the most profound thing that a student has said to me in this time. And she said, if my grades have to suffer at the detriment of, you know, of my happiness, then so be it. She was like, I would rather me be happy and my grades not be as good as they could be than go through this year and feel like I don't have anything left to give. And for me, it was just a moment of, yeah, actually, (laughs) this is the messaging we need to send. Uh, You know, six weeks isn't going to impact our kids learning too much. We can catch up. What can be really detrimental, though, is our mental health. And if that continues to decrease that can be something that takes a long time yeah. to to treat and to rectify and to get back to where you are. So my advice would be put your health first, physical and mental, and then everything else will come. You know, six weeks isn't, you know, it's a really, really difficult time. And I get the pressures and I understand the concerns and the importance of what other people place on different things. And that's okay too, but just remember that if we're not physically and mentally healthy, then this is going to be a really, really challenging time. So just perhaps readjusting those expectations and those priorities during this time, I would say. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you again. As I said, my last conversation, really deep conversation with you was when you're in year 12. So thank you for agreeing to come on. Oh, thanks, Laura. It's very some thought-provoking things to me that I'm going to take away and (laughs) spend some time thinking about. Thanks again, Jess. Thanks, Laura.